In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Hi guys, second reading is Acts chapter 27, verses 13 to 44, and it's on page 1032. And then when we finish that bit, we're going to flip over to chapter 28, verses 11 to 16. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But not long afterward, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and was unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's gear overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For this night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And look, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. When the fourteenth night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, 
and in the middle of the night the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took a sounding and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then, fearing we might run aground in some rocky place, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending they were going to put out anchors from the boat. Uh, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "'Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved.' Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, "'Today's the fourteenth day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for this has to do with your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head.' After he had said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them, and when he broke it, he began to eat. They all became encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognise the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable, while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. So he ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. In this way, everyone safely reached the shore. Jumping over to chapter 28, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin brothers as its figurehead. Putting into Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, now the believers from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was permitted to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was uh, preaching at 8 o'clock church this morning, a guy came up to Austin and said, that is, that is the best reading in the whole Bible. He's a member of the uh, uh, Kirby Yacht Squadron. He got excited by skiffs and drift anchors and bows and sterns. But what do you do with a chapter like that? Why all the details? Why does God bother to talk about places of names and peoples and nautical miles and soundings 120 feet deep? Who cares? It's what you do with it. Our, our God is a God of detail, isn't he? Our God is a God who is in all the details, 
and over all the details and under all the details because our God is a God who knows every intimate moment of every individual who's ever walked on this planet. Every second of every minute of every hour of your life and my life are known by God. I think that's amazing that our God knows all the details of every human being because our lives are in his hands. This is a poem by a lady called Corrie Ten Boom. Have you heard of her? Uh, the woman who survived the prison of war camp. This poem is called Life is But a Weaving. It's on the screen. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. I love that poem because it reminds me that I'm not in control, but God is. I'm not sovereign, but, but God is. I don't see everything, but God does, and God sees, and God knows, and God cares, and God controls, even when I don't like it. And there's moments in my life where I want to press the, the rewrite the script button. But God's in control. I love that poem because it reminds me that I only see the, the underside and not the rich tapestry that God is creating. And the underside is uh, often full of mess and chaos and disappointment and heartache and pain. But I just see life through the, the lens called me and my eyes. And I forget what God is doing. And sometimes I can't see it. But that's okay. And I love that poem because it reminds me that I need the, the dark threads in my life as much as the golden threads. I, I need the painful times as much as the pleasant times. I need the tragedies as much as the, the terrific times. Because that's God's rich tapestry for my life. And I love that poem because it reminds me that there's a, a doctrine in the Bible that my natural self wants to fight against and rage against and battle with. But the longer I'm a Christian, the, the more I realize that this doctrine is so profound and so foundational and so essential for a rich relationship with Jesus. And I'm talking about the, the doctrine of God's providence. That word just means that God is under all things and in all things and over all things and control of everything. And nothing happens in my life unless God wants it to happen. And if you understand this doctrine of God's providence, you, you get rid of words from your vocabulary like luck, chance, 
fate, fortune, accident. Because everything that happens in my life and your life happens because God wants it to happen. We sing about God's providence all the time. All of my life, in every season, you are still God. You give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, no power can stand against you, no curse assault your throne, no one can steal your glory. We sing about it and we, we read about it in the Bible, Psalm 130, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, his sovereignty rules over all. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, God does according to his will, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done, God? Matthew 10, verse 29, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Even the hairs on your head have all been counted, so don't be afraid. You know, we, we sing about it, we read about it, but let me ask you, do you really believe it? Do you believe this doctrine of God's providence? Do you really believe that God's guiding hand is in every moment of every situation, of every circumstance in your life? The good and the bad, the terrible and the terrific. Now, I find it really easy to believe in God's providence when life is good, don't you? Now, when God sort of rubber stamps what I want and my plans... God's providence is easy to believe. But what about when you don't get what you want? What about when God's plans are so, so different to your plans? Do you still believe it then? Let's think big picture. Is your God in control of every tsunami and every hurricane and every earthquake? Is your God in control of those millions of displaced people who are longing for just some food and some clothing and some shelter? Does he know each one of them by name? Is your God in control of the disappearance of little William Tyrrell? Or bring it more personally, is your God in control when your health breaks down? Is your God in control when your marriage breaks down? Is your God in control when... You're struck by tragedy and suffering and disaster that you would never, ever, ever, ever expect. And how do you react when God takes your life down a path that you would never have chosen? Do you fight against him? Or do you trust him? So 25 years ago, this was my plan for my life. 20 years old, I was going to finished my PhD, then I was going to go to Bible college, and I was going to get a job at a church in England, and I was going to be a missionary in Africa. I was going to get married young and have kids before I was 25 so that they'd be grown up and left home by the time I was 50. What was, what was the path that God took me down? Oh, I went to Bible college, but I left without a job. I didn't go to Africa, I went to this place called Australia. And I was single till I was 40. And still having kids aged 45. See, God's plans are not my plans. I'm not in control, but he is. 
And along the way, there's been pain and heartache and disappointments and tragedies and lots of pleasant surprises and unexpected joys. See, left to ourselves, our path through life will be the easy route from A to B. And God does take us from A to B, but he often takes us through various detours that we would never choose. So I'll ask you again, do you believe in God's providence? It's way back in Acts 23, verse 11, when God said to Paul, Have courage, be strong, Paul, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God says to the Apostle Paul, you will preach the gospel in Jerusalem and you will preach the gospel in Rome. I'll get you from Jerusalem to Rome. So trust me, be strong, be courageous. Now I'm guessing if Paul could choose how he got from Jerusalem to Rome. He'd have chosen the easy route, wouldn't he? Go online, you know, book a nice cheap flight, look at your diary, find the best time of year to travel. If you're going to go to Rome, then maybe you spend some time with friends and make sure you've done your research so you can find the nice restaurants and nice cafes and the things to do in Rome. But so far, Paul has been in prison for two years in a rat-infested jail, chained naked to a wall. He's been attacked by a crowd, flogged by the Sanhedrin, on trial before Felix, Festus and Agrippa. I don't imagine Paul chose that, did he? That wasn't his plans, but that was God's plans. And God will bring Paul to Rome, but God will do it God's way. Let's see how he does it. Acts 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners. Now, when you read that verse, sailing to Italy, please don't think a nice piano cruise liner. Please don't think about Paul sitting back, sipping his Chardonnay with a, a gym and a jacuzzi and a buffet breakfast. When Paul sets sail to Italy, he's on an old, unsuitable, unsafe, overcrowded cargo ship. You ever seen a picture of the refugees crammed into those tiny, unsafe boats? That's the journey that Paul took. It goes from bad to worse. In verse 4, we're told the winds were against them. In verse 7, we're told they sailed with difficulty. In verse 8, with yet more difficulty, we sailed along the coast. And verse 9, we're told the, uh, the fast was already over. That's the, it's autumn, it's October time. The weather is changing. And Paul, an experienced sailor who sailed over 3,500 miles, he knows you don't sail in October. He warns them in verse 10, don't do it. But of course, they ignore the advice and they do it. We're told in verse 14 that there's a fierce wind called the Northeaster. It's a a nice way of saying a hurricane. They're in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a tornado, in the middle of a a violent hurricane. It's a Hollywood movie. 
the wind and the waves are crashing over this little ship. They can't control the lifeboat, the skiff in verse 16. Uh, they, they gird the ship in verse 17. They literally tie ropes around the bottom of the, of the ship to, to stop it from breaking up. They lower down the, the drift anchor, verse 17. They, they get rid of the cargo, verse 18. It's this disaster. Verse 20. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept on raging. And finally, all hope we would ever be saved was disappearing. It's bleak, it's hopeless. I saw the movie Everest on Friday night. It's a great movie. There's that moment when you realize that it is utter, utter hopelessness. There's no way these people can survive. That's the situation here. Let me ask you, what what do you do at those moments in your life when your life is so bleak and so dark and you're utterly, utterly hopeless? What do you do? I'll tell you what I do. I go into poor can fix it mode. You know, Bob the Builder, he can fix it. Paul Dale, he can fix it. I can find my way out of this mess. And God over the years has shown me time and time again, no, 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 you can't, Paul. Turn to me, trust in me, take me at my word, run to me, run to Jesus. Don't trust in self. Paul stands up in verse 21 and he kind of says, told you so in verse 21. You men should have followed my advice not to sail. Verse 22, I urge you to take courage. There it is again. Be strong. Don't be afraid. There'll There'll be no loss of any of your lives, but only the ship. How did you know that? Verse 23, because an angel of God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. You will get to Rome. And look, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage. Be strong. Believe God. Take him at his word. Do you do that in, in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the chaos and the failed plans of your life? Do you take God at his word? Do you believe the promises of God? Oh, God hasn't told us directly we'll get from Jerusalem to Rome, has he? But what has God promised you? God has promised you that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that? God, God has promised you when you run to Jesus, you have complete forgiveness. Do you believe that? God has promised you that he will keep you for heaven. Do you believe that? God has promised you that he will provide for all your needs. Not your wants, but your needs. Do you promise that? Do you believe that? God has promised you that he will not tempt you beyond that which you can bear. Do you believe that? In the chaos of life, do you actually take God at his word? Anyway, verse 27, there's 14 nights stuck in a storm. I think I'd be an utter, utter wreck, wouldn't you? 14 days and nights in the midst of a hurricane storm. And they're drifting and they're drifting and they're drifting and suddenly they realize they're approaching land. They can't see a thing. They're praying for daylight. Verse 29. I love the words of verse 34. He says, none of you will lose a hair from your head. 
So what does that tell you about God? His protection, his knowledge, his goodness, his kindness, his power. Anyway, they arrive on land in verse 38 and verse 44. Everyone reached safely to the shore. As you read this horrific account, you think, oh, things can't get any worse for Paul, can they? Oh, but they do because they arrive at Malta. And the Maltese people are extraordinarily kind in verse 1 of chapter 28. But verse 3, as Paul gathers a bundle of brushwood, he put it on the fire. A snake comes out and bites him, a venomous snake. Now, now think about this. Paul did get from Jerusalem to Rome. But what was God's plan for his journey? Floggings, beatings, a prison sentence, a severe storm, malnutrition, and snake bites. Do you think Paul would have chosen that? Of course he wouldn't. But in the midst of it all, he knows that God's in control. God's hand is in, over, and under every moment of his life. And I'm here tonight to urge you to put on what I call the the providence glasses, God's providence. To see your life through that lens of God's guiding hand. And that will change your whole outlook to life. It will change the way you plot, the way that you plan. It will change the way you face trials and disappointments because you're not in control. And can I urge you to put on those glasses now and get that doctrine right now? Because when your darkest days come, when you face that really, really awful tragedy, if you haven't got this doctrine right, you will rage against God and you will run away from God. When I first read this chapter, uh, two things leapt out at me. The first is the similarity to Jonah. Do you spot that? God's man on a boat in the middle of a storm amongst pagan sailors. And then I thought, actually, they're quite different because Jonah is a man who is running away from God and totally disobedient to God. But Paul is a faithful, godly servant of God. And I think that's one of the points here that even the most humble, godly, faithful, obedient man or woman of God are not exempt from trials and tragedies. We still scream, why, why? And my second observation was that there's so much detail. Names of people and tidal charts and names of ships and the heads of the ships and how long and how many people and what they ate. Who cares? And the answer is, God cares. Because God cares for all the minute detail of every person in this room tonight. And nothing takes him by surprise. One commentator said this. No raging hurricane could upset God's plan. No raging hurricane could upset God's plan. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a comfort, isn't it? To know that God isn't unaware of this. But it's not quite right, is it? Because the hurricane was God's plan. 
God didn't just allow this storm, this hurricane. He was in control of it. That was God's plan for Paul's life, to go through that storm. God knew that Paul would spend two years in prison. God knew which boat he would travel on, with whom he would travel, what the journey would look like. Yes, the storm and all. He knew how long the storm would last and which island they would land on because God was in it all and over it all and behind it all. Now listen to these three statements and I want to ask you, which of these three statements brings you the greatest comfort as a Christian? Number one. Nothing happens that God isn't aware of. That's quite nice, isn't it? God's aware of all the hard times you're going through. That, that's quite nice. Number two, nothing happens in your life that God doesn't allow. That's quite nice as well. You know, he's got his hand on it in some way. Or number three, Nothing happens in your life that God isn't in control of. Nothing happens in your life that God isn't in complete control of. Isn't that the greatest comfort? That your lives are totally and utterly in the hands of an all-powerful, almighty, all-loving, all-kind God. Yes, terrible times and terrific times. I look back on my life, I would never have chosen to grow up uh, from the age of 11 to 20, nursing a terminally ill father 24-7. But that was God's plan. He took me through that, yes, and he built my character through it. I would never have chosen the path that I went down in my early 20s, but God took me down that path for a purpose and a reason. I would never have chosen to go through the dark, dark days of 2005, but God took me there for a reason. And all the good things that have happened. I wouldn't have chosen to marry a widow with a five-year-old child, but that was God's plan for my life. Rachel certainly wouldn't have chosen to be widowed age 27, but that was God's plan for her life. My point is this, that we are not in control, but God is. And so we do, verse 22, we take courage, we're not afraid. Yeah, we may be confused, but we know he cares and he knows and he loves. Let me read this. As a wise, skillful, as a wise, skilled pharmacist mixes medicine, our Heavenly Father wisely mixes exactly the right measure of bitter things and sweet to do us good. Too much joy would intoxicate us, but too much misery would drive us to despair. Too much sorrow would crush us and too much suffering would, make us, would break our spirits, but too much pleasure would ruin us. Too much defeat would discourage us. Too much success puffs us up. Too much criticism would harden us, but too much praise would exalt us. Our great God knows exactly what we need and his providence is wisely designed and sent for our good. Let him... Let God, therefore, send and do what God's will is. And by his grace, if we are his, we will face it, bow to it, accept it, and give thanks for it. So do you believe in the providence of God? And if you do, wherever God places you, 
in whatever situation, in whatever circumstances, will you proclaim the gospel of God? I reckon these last two chapters are Paul acting out what he writes in Colossians 4 verse 5. He writes Colossians 4 verse 5, Be wise in the way that you act towards the outsider, making the most of every opportunity. Wherever he finds himself, he talks about Jesus. Remember, he was before the Sanhedrin, he preached the resurrection. Before King Agrippa, he preached the gospel. On this ship to these pagan soldiers, he talked about Jesus. In Malta, he preached the gospel. In Rome, he preached the gospel. He just can't stop talking about Jesus. Wherever he finds himself, that's the opportunity to talk about his saviour. So when he gets to Rome, verse chapter 28, he doesn't go and see the Colosseum or the Pantheon. He doesn't take a little trip around the markets or go to the Vatican. What does he do? 28 verse 23, from dawn to dusk, he expounded and witnessed about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them, tried to convert them. Verse 24, some were persuaded, but others didn't believe. That always happens. And look how the, the, whole, the whole book ends. Acts 28 verse 30. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house. That's not as, as flat as it sounds. He's actually in prison still. He's under house arrest. He welcomed all those who visited him because he can't go out, but people can come to him. He proclaims the kingdom of God and teaches the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. He boldly preaches about Jesus wherever he finds himself, whoever he is with. I reckon if Paul were here tonight, he'd say, I'm really thankful for those three weeks on that ship because I had 275 sailors I can talk to Jesus about. And I was really thankful that when I got to Rome, I was put under house arrest because I had time to write letters. You may have read them, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. And I was really thankful that God put that person into my path so I could talk about Jesus. Do you see life like that? That whatever situation God has placed you in, there's an opportunity to share your faith. I shared a few weeks ago about when my arm was in a cast and I was walking on the beach at Narrabee and this, this young surfer dude, about 17, with you know the, the surfy haircut, came up to me and said, dude, can I pray for your arm? I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the power to heal. He didn't know I was a Christian. But he was boldly talking about his saviour. Good on him. I was at preschool a few years ago and this uh, other Christian tried to evangelise me, not know I was a Christian. I thought, good on you. I think my wife is a great example here. When Nathaniel was in NICU, that's our, our second son, was in the intensive care when he was born prematurely. As well as caring for her child, she's also talking about her faith. Opportunities there to talk about our God and our belief in him. So I don't know what God's going to take you through. I don't know where he's going to take you. But when you have that opportunity, do you talk about your saviour? Do you talk about your God? When life is chaotic, when you go through trials and tragedies and disasters, that's an opportunity to say, I believe there is a God in control of this. And please don't underestimate how powerful that can be. Because when we as Christians face tragedy and trials with this 
confidence. Yes, heartache, and yes, pain, but a confidence that there is a God who's over, in, and under all things. That is powerful, isn't it? So I don't know what path God's going to take your life down, or my life, but I do know this. He's in control. And every day, and every situation, is an opportunity for me to share my faith. I'll finish that poem again. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you are indeed sovereign over all things, that your hand is in, under, and over each of our lives. Oh Lord, to know that you know us intimately, you know every hair on our head, you know our today, you know our tomorrow. Lord, forgive us for times when we don't trust you. And Father, for those times where we just long for the script to be rewritten or to press the rewind button. At those moments, Lord, help us to run to Jesus and to trust that you do know, you do care, and you do see. In Jesus' name.